Chapter 17 of Nothing But the Truth by Frederick Isham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17 A Good Deal of Gigi. See here, he said rather savagely, this has got to stop. Gigi stared. Bless its little heart. What is it talking about? You know, said Bob. The fact that he saw now Gwendolen Gerald rejoined afar by the hammer thrower did not improve his temper. Pardon me returned Gigi, tossing her auburn hair, if I fail to connect. Mrs. Ralston has been good enough to treat us as her regular guests, and indeed why shouldn't she? With much dignity. But if you feel I ain't good enough to speak to your Lord High Mightiness, except at stage doors and alleys and roof gardens, cuttingly. This isn't a question of social amenities, said Bob. Gigi didn't know what amenities meant, and that made her matter. You've come down here to raise a regular hornet's nest. Gigi sat down. She was so mad she had to do something. She wanted to slap Bob's face, but she couldn't do that. As Mrs. Ralston's guess, she couldn't give way to her natural and primitive impulses. Her gown, modishly tight all over, strained almost to bursting point. It seemed to express the state of her feelings. A high-heeled shoe, encasing a pink-stockinged foot, agitated itself like a flag in a gale. "'I like that,' she gasped. "'And who are you to talk to me like that? Maybe you think this is a rehearsal.' "'For argument's sake, I'll own I'm not much account just at present,' said Bob. "'Be that as it may, I'm going to try to stop the mischief you are up to if I can.' He didn't know how he would stop it. He was talking more to draw Gigi out than for any other purpose. Bob's own testimony, as to certain occurrences on that memorable roof-garden evening, wouldn't amount to much. The lawyers could impeach it, even if they let him testify at all in those awful divorce cases that were pending. But they probably wouldn't let him take the witness-stand, if he was a prisoner. Bob didn't know quite what was the law governing the admissibility of testimony in a case like his. Gigi shifted her mental attitude. She was getting her second breath, and caution whispered to her to control herself. This handsome young gentleman had been the most indifferent member of the quartet on that inauspicious occasion on the roof. Indeed, he had yawned in the midst of festivities. Bob, in love, cared not for showgirls or ponies. He had even tried to discourage Dan and the others in their zest for innocent enjoyment. Gigi now eyed Bob more critically. As a young man sure of himself, he had impressed her on that other occasion. Instinct had told her to avoid Bob and select Dan. Now that same instinct told her it might be better to temporize with this blunt-speaking young gentleman, to sound him. "'You sure have got me floating,' observed Gigi in more ladylike accents. "'I'm way up in the air. Throw out a few sandbags and let's hit the earth.' "'That's easy,' said Bob. "'Do you deny you're down here to raise Ned?' "'Do I deny it?' remarked Gigi with flashing eyes. "'Do I? We are down here to fill a little professional engagement. We are down here on account of our histrionic talents.' A sound came from Bob's throat. Gigi professed not to notice it. "'We are paid a fee, not a small one, to come down here to do privately our little turn, which was the hit of the piece and the talk of Broadway.' "'Bosh!' said Bob coolly. Gigi looked dangerous. Once more the pink-stockinged ankle began to swing agitatedly, and again reckless Bob narrowly escaped a slap in the face. "'Mrs. Dan and Mrs. Clarence got Mrs. Ralston to ask you down here,' 
he went on. You weren't asked on account of your histrionic ability. You were asked because it was the only feasible way to get you beyond other strong, I may even say desperate, and to them inimical, influences. Mrs. Ralston isn't the only one who is financing your little rural expedition. I guess you know what I mean. Nix, said Gee Gee. You've got me up in the air again. Turn the little wheel around and let the car come down. This ain't Sunday, and if I was taking a little Coney Island treat, I wouldn't choose you for my escort. It certainly isn't Sunday in the sense of a day of rest, remarked Bob gloomily. By this time the hammer-man and Miss Gerald were beyond his range of vision. But he would not think of them. He must not. He had a duty to perform here. Maybe it would do no good, but it was his duty to try. "'That publicity racket is all right up to a certain point,' he said, bending his reproachful eyes upon Gee-Gee. "'But when it comes to smashing reputations, stretching the truth, and injuring others irreparably, all for a little cheap nauseating notoriety, well—' Bob hit straight from the shoulder. "'I tell you, it's rotten. And I, for one, shall do what I can to show up the whole conspiracy. That's what it is. It would be different if you were going to tell what was so. But you aren't. It isn't in the cards. I don't know what you're talking about. Gee Gee's tight dress nearly exploded now. The blood had receded from her face, and left it a mottled cream, while her greenish eyes glowed like opals. Her expression was animalistic. It seemed to say she would like to crush something beneath those high heels, and grind them into it. Yes, you do, said Bob and it will be a frame-up for poor old Dan and Clarence, too." Dickie's description of what was going to happen recurred to him poignantly. "'I tell you it's a wicked, cruel thing to do. I repeat, it's rotten.' If he thought he could overwhelm Gee-Gee by a display of superior masculine strength and moral force, he was mistaken. Gee-Gee wasn't that kind of a girl. She had some force herself, though whether of the moral kind is another matter. "'Wicked! Rotten! Cheap!' she repeated slowly, but breathing hard. "'Listen to the infant. Rotten!' She lingered on the word, as if it had a familiar sound. "'Well, what is life, anyhow?' she flung out suddenly at the six-foot infant. "'Maybe you think this theatre business is like going to Sunday school, that all we have to do is hold goody-goody hands and sing those salvation songs. Salvation! Gee!' And Gee-Gee folded her arms. She seemed to meditate. "'You know what kind of salvation a girl gets down on old Broadway?' she scoffed. "'Aren't the men nice and kind? Don't they take you by the hand and say, "'Come on, little girl, I'll give you a helping hand. "'Oh, yes, they give you a helping hand, but it isn't up. It's all down. "'And everyone wants to see how deep they can make it. "'Say, infant, I was born in one of those avenues with letters. People like these—' looking toward the house, don't know nothing about that kind of an avenue. It ought to be called a rotten alley. That's where I learned what rotten meant. Nice young gentlemen like you, who toddled about with nursey in the park, can't tell me." Bob tried not to look small. He endeavoured to maintain his dignity. He was almost sorry he had got Gee Gee started. The conversation was leading into unexpected channels. "'Why, I toddled about in rottenness,' went on Gee Gee. Gutters were my playground, dreamily. She seemed to be forgetting her resentment in these childhood recollections. Sometimes I slept in cellar doorways, with the rotten cabbages all around. But they and all the rest of the spoiled things seemed to agree with me. I've thrived on rottenness, infant. 
Bob winced. It's all that some girls get. Men. And Gee Gee laughed. Here was a topic she could dilate on. Again the opal eyes gleamed tigerishly. I've got a lot of cause to love em. Oh, ain't they particular about their reputations? Gee Gee's chuckle was fiendish. Poor precious little dears. Be careful, and don't get a teeny speck of smudge on their snowy white wings. My, look out! Don't splash em, or if you do, rub it off quick, so the people in church won't see it. But when it comes to us— Gee-Gee showed her teeth. I learned when I was in the gutter that I had to fight. Sometimes I had to fight with dogs for a crust. Sometimes with boys who were worse still. Later with men who were worst of all. And— said Gigi, again tossing her auburn mane. I'm still fighting, infant. Which means, said Bob slowly, overlooking these repeated insults to his dignity, you aren't here just to exhibit those histrionic talents you talked about? Gigi laughed. She was feeling better-natured now that she had relieved herself by speaking of some of those wrongs she and her sex had undoubtedly to endure. There were times when Gigi just had to moralize, it was born in her to do so. And she liked particularly to grill the men, and after the grilling, usually to the receptive and sympathetic get-up. She particularly liked also to go out and angle for one. And after he had taken the hook, the deeper the better, Gigi dearly loved the piscatorial sport that came later, of watching the rushes, the wild turnings, the frenzied leaps. She even began to eye the infant now with sleepy green eyes. But no hook for him. He wasn't hungry. He wouldn't even smell of a bait. Gee Gee felt this, having quite an instinct in such matters. Perhaps experience, too, had helped her make a good fisherwoman. So she didn't even bother making any casts for Bob. But she answered him sweetly enough, having now recovered her poise and being more sure of her ground. It doesn't mean anything of the sort. Our act has been praised in a number of the newspapers, I would have you understand. All right, said Bob, as strenuously as he was capable of speaking. I only wanted you to know that between you and me it will be fight. This was sheer bluff, but he thought it might deter Gee Gee a little. It might curb just a bit of that lurid imagination of hers. Gee Gee got up now, laughing musically. Also, she showed once more her white teeth. Then she stretched somewhat robust arms. Fight with you? she scoffed. Why, you can't fight, infant. You haven't grown up yet. Bob had the grace to blush, and Gee Gee, about to depart, noticed it. He looked fresh and big and nice to her at that moment. So nice, indeed, that suddenly she did throw out a bait, one of her most brilliant smiles supplemented by a speaking, sleepy glance. But Bob didn't see the bait. He was like a fish in a pool, too deep for her line. Gee Gee shrugged, then she walked away. Snip! That imitation gardener was now among the vines, right underneath where Bob was sitting. Gee Gee's little act was better than Bob expected it would be. She sang a French song with no more vulgarity than would mask as piquancy, and the men applauded loudly. Gee Gee was a success. Giddup put hers over it, too. Then, together, they did a few new dances not ungracefully. Mrs. Dan's face was rather a study. She was an extremist on the sex question, and would take the woman's side against the man every time. Theoretically, she would invite injured innocence right into camp. She reversed that old humbug, saying, The woman did tempt me. 
according to her philosophy, man, being naturally not so good as a woman, was entitled to shoulder the bulk of the blame. But when she looked at Gigi, she may have had her doubts. She may even have regretted being instrumental in bringing her here at all. And it is not unlikely that Mrs. Clarence may have entertained a few secret regrets also, and doubts as to the application of a broad-minded big way of looking at certain things pertaining to her own sex, when she beheld of the saucy turned-up nose and brazen freckle. Certain it is, both Mrs. Dan and Mrs. Clarence looked more serious and thoughtful than jubilant. They didn't applaud. They just seemed to, bringing their hands together without making a noise. But both ladies were now committed to the inevitable. Gigi and Gidup, displaying their histrionic talents, were but calculated to make Mrs. Dan and Mrs. Clarence the more determined to pursue the matter to the bitter end. Among the guests now was a certain legal light. His presence there at this particular time, when the two G's adorned the festivities, might be a mere coincidence. On the other hand, it might signify much. He had certainly spent a long time that afternoon talking to Gigi and Gidup. Mrs. Dan and Mrs. Clarence came in contact with them only by proxy. Bob was a deeply pained spectator of the wordless drama that was being enacted. He alone, besides those directly involved, knew the tragedy lurking behind the mocking face of comedy. That gay music sounded to Bob like a fugue. He could well believe what it was costing Mrs. Dan and Mrs. Clarence to attain their purpose. They weren't enjoying themselves. It was altogether a miserable business, and almost made Bob forget his own tragedy. A little incident, however, brought the latter once more vividly to mind. It occurred while Gigi, in answer to applause at the conclusion of her dance with Gidup, was singing another of those risqué French café chantant songs. Bob sat next to the temperamental little thing, who was behaving with exemplary consistency. She had been comporting herself in strictly comrade fashion ever since their last talk, not once overdoing the little chum act. She hadn't asked him for a single kiss, or to put his arm about her waist in dark corners. Perhaps she was too anxious on his account for sentimental considerations. She couldn't understand the way things were going, that is, things pertaining to Bob. "'Why don't they?' once she whispered to Bob. He knew what she meant. "'Arrest him?' He shook his head. "'Dallying,' he answered. "'I could just scratch his eyes out,' she murmured with excess of loyalty. "'Whose?' "'That monocle man. You know what I did this afternoon?' "'No.' Bob, however, surmised it would be something interesting. I went up to that monocle man, and told him every word I had said to him the night before wasn't so. You did? Staring at her. Yes, I did, setting her cherry lips firmly. I told him I was just trying to fool him, and that I would never, never, never testify to such rubbish, if called on to do so. But you'll have to, said Bob. You've got to tell the truth. I'd tell whoppers by the bushel to help you, she confided to him unblushingly. That's the kind of a friend I am. But I wouldn't have you. I wouldn't let you, he murmured in mild consternation. Great Scott, they'd have you up for perjury. Oh, no, they wouldn't. I'd do it so cleverly. But the monocle man would testify, too. Who do you think a jury would rather believe, me or him? she demanded confidently especially if I was all dressed up and looked at them all the time I was testifying. Well, said Bob, I don't believe you could do it anyhow. Besides, it would be stretching friendship too far. 
though you're a jolly little pal to offer to. She hunched a dainty little shoulder against his strong arm. I'd go through fire and water for you, breathed the jolly little pal. It's fine of you to say it, answered Bob fervently. I haven't many friends now, you know, but, but it's impossible what you propose. It would only get you into trouble. I'd be a big brute to allow that. It would make me out a fine pal, wouldn't it? Besides, it wouldn't do any good. Someone else heard me go into your room and knows all about it. Someone else would fortify what the monocle man would tell, and her testimony and his would overwhelm yours, and I'd never forgive myself for your being made a victim of your own loyalty. Was that someone else, Miss Gerald? asked the jolly little pal quickly. Yes, said Bob. As he spoke, he glanced toward Miss Gerald. Gigi had now started to sing, and nearly everyone's head was turned toward the vivacious vocalist. Bob saw Miss Gerald's proud profile. He saw, too, the hammer-thrower next to her, as usual. On the other side of the hammer-thrower, the side nearer where Gigi stood, was the lady who had given Bob the cold shoulder a few nights ago at dinner. The hammer-thrower's eyes were naturally turned toward that cold shoulder now, and, as naturally, his gaze should have been bent over it, toward the vocal centre of attraction for the moment, but his gaze had stopped at the shoulder, or something on it. Bob noted that look. For a fraction of a minute, or second, it revealed a sudden new odd intensity, as it rested on a lovely string of pearls ornamenting the cold shoulder and at the same instant a wave of light seemed to sweep over Bob. For that fraction of a minute he seemed strangely, amazingly, to have been afforded a swift glimpse into a soul. The whole thing was psychic. Bob couldn't have told just how he came to know. But he knew. He was sure now who had taken Mrs. Vanderpool's brooch. Strangely, too, the hammer-thrower, after that fraction of a second's relaxation of vigilance over his inner, secret self, should have turned and looked straight toward Bob. His look was now heavy, normal. Bob's was burning. "'You!' his eyes said, as plainly as if he had called out the word. The hammer-thrower's face did not change in the least, nor did his look. He turned his eyes toward the singer with heavy nonchalance, and never had his face appeared more honest and trustworthy. "'Oh, you beauty!' murmured Bob admiringly. "'Do you really think she is?' asked the jolly little pal. She thought Bob meant Gigi. "'Is that the style you like?' "'Thinking of something else,' said Bob. "'Someone, you mean?' with slight reproach. "'Pals aren't jealous,' he reminded her. "'Besides, it was a man.' "'Oh,' she said wonderingly. For life is but a game of hide-and-seek, sang Gigi, in the rather execrable French someone had drilled into her. Come and catch me, was the refrain. Bob shook his head. He didn't want to play at that game. But life was a game of hide-and-seek, all right. He permitted himself the luxury of smiling, as he once more looked over at the hammer-thrower and applauded Gigi. Odd, the idea of the hammer-thrower being that person he was supposed to be had never occurred to the latter. But no one ever would suspect that face. My face is my fortune, sir, he might have said. The hammer-thrower caught Bob's smile. Come and catch me, reiterated Gigi. That might be applicable to the hammer-thrower. Bob, for the moment, felt as happy as a child who has discovered the solution of a puzzle, so that when Miss Gerald deigned casually to glance at him, she was surprised at his new expression. It seemed a long while since Bob had looked happy, 
but now he looked almost like his old self. Was it the near presence of the temperamental young thing that had wrought this change? Miss Gerald might well have asked herself. Violet eyes looked now into temperamental dark ones. Gwendolen, too, was smiling at the song, but it was that cryptic kind of a smile once more. Bob's smile was a rather large cryptic counterpart of Miss Gerald's. The temperamental little thing, though, didn't smile. She seemed reading Miss Gerald's soul. She was dropping a plumb-line deep down into it. Then Miss Gerald turned again to the hammer-thrower, who was talking to her just as if Bob hadn't seen anything, or imagined he had. Gee Gee sat down, at the same time condescending to bestow upon Bob a triumphal look. He had dared to scoff at her histrionic talent, had he? Well, she had shown him, and them. Maybe, with a little publicity, she would become a star of dazzling magnitude. At that moment the world looked bright to Gee Gee. End of chapter 17